Welcome to the MyPersonalFootballCoach.com Youth Soccer Player Development Podcast, Episode 13, Ask the Experts with Danny Buck. Welcome to MyPersonalFootballCoach.com's Soccer Player Development Podcast. Discover all the secrets, hints and tips about soccer player development and soccer coaching from some of the leading figures in world soccer. Here's your host, Saul Isaacson-Hurst. Hi guys, welcome back to another show. Uh, this is the first uh, of two of our podcast specials, Ask the es- Experts. So first of all, thanks uh, everyone who took the time to email me all that, that uh, all, all those questions and the guys who took time on Twitter. Uh, we unfortunately didn't get a chance to go through all the questions, but uh, we got through quite a lot. Um, unfortunately, uh, Ryan Hall couldn't join us for this episode. He had a bit of a, a uh, family emergency uh, turn up, so couldn't make it. So just myself and Bucky, uh, Danny Buck, who's got over 20 years experience working in uh, Premier League Academy football. So uh, hopefully all you guys get lots of value from it. I've Certainly did, got lots of value from it as well. And um, as I said, the first of two. So then in the next uh, week or so, we'll have the the uh, 12 to 18s with uh, Danny Sell and Mickey Beal coming out as well. So uh, I hope you I hope you enjoy this one. It really is very interesting. Um, all go on the My Personal Football Coach front. Uh, we're talking to a couple of pro clubs who are interested in using our online training program as a, as a homework uh, portal for their players and several clubs also uh, in North America who are looking to help add value to their membership and uh, support their players technical development with our online homework program the dynamic ball mastery program so lots going on all is well and without further ado let's get into the show so Danny Buck welcome to the show hi Saul thanks for taking time out for this I know you've got a busy schedule mate uh, it's a pleasure no problem at all so as you know we uh, put the uh, asked all the um the listeners, as it were, to send their questions in. They've sent lots of questions in, so we'll just work through these questions uh, one by one and um, we'll sort of uh, discuss each one and their merits, as it were. No so, uh, first one up. Um, this, uh, in Australia, the faster, more physical players are viewed in better esteem than players with less speed but more technical ability, even at the skill acquisition stages between 9 and 12. What is your opinion on this and how is it viewed in Europe? I mean, I think where, where you say how it's viewed in Europe, I think uh, teams have a very different view to perhaps maybe what my view is. And for, I think what experience tells you is that you, you can't always go down one road. You can't say you're going you're gonna to go with lots of quick players or lots of physically good players or lots of technical, you know, you've got to have a bit of a balance because uh, a lot of the, you know, potentially smaller players that might not move quite as well in a straight line, might move quite well sidewards and backwards, which is just as important in the modern game, depending on the position you're playing. So uh, I think people are still a little bit safe. They will look at results. And, you know, sometimes, you know, these smaller, less impact type players in a, in a, in a massive like game situation might not quite produce what the kind of first eye will see whether they're you know really dominating a game but when you really look at what the players are trying to do um are they technically doing things in the right way and can you be patient enough to you know wait and see how they can compete on 11 level playing fields with boys physically the, the, the same maturation as them so i've got a question for you then in that terms of you know in your experience in academy football would you say that 
the tendency has been if you're looking across the academy landscape for like you know a big emphasis on the big physical player, big quick boys, big physical lads. <laughs> Definitely. Um, and I was having this conversation with someone the other day actually. When I think of all the players that I've taken, whether they were nines, whatever, how many of the big physical players that dominated the game through their physicalities have actually gone through and produced, you know, been able to sustain a, a career at, I would say, the top three divisions? I can name a handful tops. Um, you know, the boys that have gone through are boys that have had to find other ways who are perhaps a little bit smaller, not quite as quick. You know, didn't dominate the games quite as much through their physical attributes are the players that have come through the system. Um, but I still see, you know, we've played teams at under eight this year that, you know, are still going down the big players that are technically a long way behind some of the smaller players. And, you know, it, I just don't think people are learning, to be quite honest with you, which is a bit of a shame to see. So do you, so you, do you think there's there's been a change from you know, when you first went into academy football and looking to now? Or is it just still still the same, pretty much a blanket of big physical lads, just runners? I, I, I don't think it's changed. I think the odd club has tried to do what it can do, you know, the likes of Tottenham, you know, us at Arsenal, uh, the younger ages and what have you. Um, and, you know, you know, they're, they're the kind of clubs that are trying to change it, but I still see clubs, are, you know, so safe in how they play. And it looks like people are worried to lose. And I think you just got to forget the result. You know, do what you can for the boys. Want them to win. Want them to have a desire to win, but in the right fashion. You know, there's no point winning if it's to the detriment of the players' development. Uh, and going back to the question about you know people fancying boys that might move a bit better at this age. And when I say move, you know, the dynamic ability of, as I say, moving sideways and back is absolutely vital, and that needs to be looked at. But if a, one boy can run faster in a straight line than another boy that doesn't mean that boy that's faster is going to be a better player come 16, 17 years of age. And my experience is they don't become better players. Uh, also, from my experience as well, the, you know, the bane of my life when a recruitment officer tells me that you know, an, uh, an under nine is, is one paced or an under eight can't get around the pitch enough. Um, famous story, one of my colleagues said, I don't even know, Rayan, uh, the guy, yep. the kid who plays for, um, for Anderlecht, one of the best players in the world at the moment, age, he actually said he didn't think he could get around the pitch enough. But that's that's but, that's sort of it's still the uh, mentality of a lot of recruitment staff. Was that a case of maybe you know teaching uh, old dogs new tricks or something like that? I don't know. I think uh, until coaches, academy directors, uh, recruitment staff, kind of we all lose our ego a little bit about maybe not getting the result on Sunday or Saturday. I think it's going to be difficult. You know, there's so you know people like Harry Winks. Harry Winks, people said couldn't move properly. Josh Onomar couldn't move properly. Marcus Edwards couldn't move properly. Jack Wilshire. Harry, you know, Kane, Harry Kane. Yeah, and Alex Awobi. I remember, you know, people saying he can't move. I think, you know, it's probably, you know, one of the biggest fallacies in the game. I think as long as they are bright, willing to learn, can technically improve. And as I say, moving sideways for me is more important in the majority of the positions moving forward. Listen, you know, a player that's got extreme pace is someone that you should always work with, particularly if you get them at a younger age, but you can't have a team of them because that doesn't work. You know, there are, you know, specialists. If you get Aaron Lennon at eight and you can work with him, who knows what you could achieve. Theo Walcott the same, you know, making them better. But, you know, it can't be the norm. Okay, so moving on to the next question. Uh, I recently took my kids to a trial 
under 9, under 10 level for a football school academy. Unfortunately, the selector did not pick them and in discussions did tell me that they had great technical ability but lacked quick decision-making skills when on the ball. My question is, is this more important at the young age or does it come during their teen years? And also, how can you teach kids to have quicker decision-making skills at this age? I think decision-making is absolutely vital, but the caveat I would put on that is that you have to know what you're looking for because you might see a boy that gives the ball away three times, but it could be that the fact that other people aren't making the, the runs of the intelligence level that the boy's operating at. Um, so, you know, decision-making is a very difficult one, and you need to take it in the context of who they're playing with, the situation they're in, and I think it's something that players can develop. Um, you've got to have good decision-making, you know, players that, you know, can see stuff. But, you know, I've had a player this year that at the beginning of the season could really only play at the back of the pitch. So we pushed him, played him in the middle of the pitch to try and get it around him, try to make better decisions. And, you know, the the improvement he's shown has been enormous. Josh Onomar is another good example of that where he predominantly played as a number nine until we came into his under-12 season and then we played him as an eight and got him in the middle of the pitch to get stuff around him a little bit more because his decision-making at times wasn't quite where we wanted it to be, and he developed. So I think seeing a player for a couple of sessions saying that decision-making's poor, I'm not sure you can actually do that. I think you need to see him for a period of time. I think you need to take into the context of what they've got around them, and you've got to make sure you're absolutely sure with a kind of making a call like that because it, it's got a lot of variables. I suppose it's also, as, as, as a coach, what you're looking for, right? So if you have a young kid who likes to dribble but keeps giving it away and then, you know, if, you know, in terms of you, you want, do you want a pretty game of football, you want the boys, boys, boys to move it quick or do you want people to try, you know, and try skills and do that sort of thing as well? Exactly right. And it depends on the player you've got. You know, um, Josh Bowie, who's at Man United, was with us at Brentford and I didn't want him to pass too much. I asked. I, I told him when he got 1v1 out wide, I wanted him to try and dominate. However big and physical the other player was, I wanted him to find a way around him. And if he lost the ball, I told him that was on me. He had to try and find a way to get around players in those situations. And, and I think you've got to know your players. You know, you know, Josh then was an under-15, very different to when you're taking an under-9. And, you know, it, it just depends how you're trying to educate your players. But the last thing you want is players to be safe. You know, the more risky they are the more creative they are you know you only have to see the other night the difference between the england english side and the spanish side the creativity difference is enormous and that doesn't happen by accident there's no way that both of those teams have had the same education the players all the way through you know they've obviously been allowed to be a bit more free and make a lot of mistakes you can't be you can't play passes like someone like christian erickson without making a hell of a lot of mistakes along the way and so, so in, what's your thoughts then also then from coaching to, from the sideline? This is, I'm just digressing a little bit. You talk about letting kids make decisions and make mistakes. What's your thoughts on coaches being vocal on the sideline? When, you know, when's it a good idea? When's it a bad idea? It's a balance. I mean, I, I'm quite a vocal coach and I think, you know, players need help at times. I, I, you know, as I've said before, so you know, you know my feelings on let the game be the teacher. I'm just not a huge believer in that at all. I think, players need help but they also need to be left to make their decisions as well and it's striking that balance and different players have different needs different situations have different needs and I think how you you can't be the loud screamy guy but you also can't be the mute on the sideline you, you have to show a balance and I think 
you know, speaking to a lot of players now who are in their mid-20s that I might have taken at, at 9 and 10, a lot of them say they really, really found it helpful that I would talk to them during the game and help them during the game. And they said they found it very hard when, you know, people didn't do that because there were situations where they were trying things, it wouldn't work, and they just needed help. And you have to balance that needed help. You know, no way should you be commentating through the game and pass, run, do this. You know, it's more let them do it, see how they get on, then give them a little bit of help for me. I think that's the issue, isn't it? My issue is the nice to see coaches who are screaming, you like you say, turn it, pass it, switch it, he's open, play, almost playing a game for the players. That really does take away any sorts of uh, decision-making skills, uh, ability from the players. I had, I had a good um, thing I picked up recently. My, well, I've been using the last season I was in academy football, which is trying to avoid talking to uh, the attackers when in possession and then uh, avoid talking to the defenders when out of possession. So just thinking about, you know, when and where to to um, give your give the information and sort of less is more type thing. Yeah, I think so. And, and what you said there, Saul's not a bad idea. And I think, you know, the difference is when you start, at, at maybe at 9 and 10, I agree. At 15, 16, when you're out of possession, say they're the opposition goalkeeper's taking a goal kick and you see that you, you, your back four isn't quite in the, in, in the right um, line or something, you might say to your centre-half, you know, where should you be? Do you think that's right? You know, and I think it's the more challenging questions there but uh, as you say with the younger age groups let them do it see what develops and then have the conversation with them afterwards about whether that was good bad or indifferent okay next question so here we go at some high profile clubs it appears from the outside that foundation phase players are expected to have an intense focus about their work and training from the pre-academy all the way through to the under 11s and beyond as a result, some clubs appear to create players who can maintain their focus and intensity in games very well over three to four periods of football. It appeared that Brentford also opted this demanding approach in recent seasons and produced young players with similar psychological qualities. So obviously that's over to you, Bucky. Well, uh, for me, intensity is absolutely everything. Um, you know, uh, you have to show them what you need them to do, whether that's tactical, technical or whatever. But the mantra at Brentford was when you're on that pitch, you're working hard. And, you know, we, we were big believers in without the ball, how we pressed, what we did with the ball, we're dynamic, people ran forward. And it had to be 100% effort. And to be fair, it's funny, funny that question, actually, because there was a lot of comments that, you know, when, when we were playing abroad and that. And I remember when we played Barcelona with the 15, 16s, you know, the, the Barcelona guys said they've never seen players with the energy levels. They, you know, very few times they've played with any, against anyone with the energy levels that we've got. And it's, we were one new up for the first half hour and it really did catch them by surprise. And I think, you know, from eights all the way up to our uh, under-21s when John was in charge of them, that was the mantra of the club. And, you know, for me, there's no point a player being able to do a skill, a pass, whatever, you know, under a nice, slow, easy pressure if they cannot do it at extreme tempo. Um, you've got to balance it because sometimes play, if, if everything's really tight and everything's crazy 300 mile an hour then people can be guessing and just playing one touch you've got to balance it but you know we trained harder than you know at a higher tempo than we played in our matches and I think that bore some fruit and certainly that's what we've taken into this season with the youngsters at, at Arsenal as well I think there's the um from my point of view, that's like a, maybe a misconception as well. People think, you know, because the foundation phase, it's, you know, turn up, a bit fluffy, everyone's, you know, kick a ball around, go outside a pitch, write something on the blackboard, come back out and do another thing. 
you know, because I remember I'd, I wrote, a, I was going to write a blog for uh, another organization and the guy questioned, that I was talking about the importance of high intensity ball mastery at the foundation phase. He said, well, high intensity with under eights, you know, as if that's something ridiculous. I said, of course, well, look, these are still, you know, young, gifted and talented players and you've got to try and, you know, have, you know, have some, you know, challenge them in any way that is, even at eights and nines. And I think that's where the misconception comes. Maybe people not used to working with younger elite players. We're talking about, you know, the the outliers at the, you know, the better clubs who really do need challenging. They need to train in an intense environment, you know, to to really challenge them and get the best out of them. And I think that's maybe where, you know, uh, misconceptions or you know something, you know, maybe people don't really understand that. What's your, what's your thoughts on that? I, I completely agree. To be quite honest with you, and I think this is where. You know, uh, most coaches you speak to are desperate to get up the ladder because they see taking the 16s is more important than, say, taking the 8s or 9s, where you know, saw from your experience of going around Europe, that isn't the case at many big clubs around around Europe. They have their top, top coaches at the key age groups like 9 and 12. And I think, you know, the intensity that they operate for the moment they come through the door has to be to get them to that elite level. For me, you can't waste a minute. Every minute you waste is a chance of, another boy at another club or another boy in another country being better than the, than, the, than the player you've got. And I think players need to have, you know, embedded in their DNA to play at a tempo that means they can produce whatever skill that is and pass, tactical skill, whatever it is, at the absolute ultimate highest tempo. If they can't do that, for me, they're going to come short. And I think as the earlier example I gave, when you watch Spain in that game against Italy at under-21s the other day, However much pressure Italy put on them in that first 15, 20 minutes, Spain had a way of dealing with the ball technically and tactically well enough. However much pressure they were put under, where you look at a lot of teams like the English team, what have you, they could not, they could not um, play under that intense pressure. And for me, that comes from how they've been brought up through the academy system. Do you think that as well? Do you think that's also to do with the philosophy, the methodology, what's the way they've been coached in terms of, you know... Um, big emphasis on possession, that type of thing? I think it goes back to the question that was asked. I think Ozzy uh, Abanji, who was the academy director at Brentford, said every session will be at this tempo and it will be a higher tempo than the matches. And we had to condition the players to do that. And I think, you know, we didn't have access to the top, top players in the country, but we were able to compete. And I think we were able to compete because of the programme and the philosophy that was put in place at that club. I think if you put the same philosophy, same program in the top, top clubs in this country, I, I don't think the likes of Spain will have better players than us. And that's where I believe we're probably just off at the moment. From the moment they walk in the door at under seven to the moment they hit the first team at under 23, they should be training at an intensity that gets them ready for the rigours of playing at the top level. And also you're thinking about, and also, you know, that's, you know, that's when they need to be challenged as well, isn't it, right? Working at exactly. that high level, that's when they're going to really make those gains. Exactly right. And how you challenge them is up to the coach and their creativity, whether you do that with area size, player numbers, multiple balls, however you do it. I think that's where, you know, us coaches earn our, earn our, earn our money, to be quite honest with you. But, you know, for me, the tempo and being able to operate under at high speed even when they're seven years old, is absolutely vital. Okay, superb. Next question. Um, so, I'm wondering if you favour stopping the play often to give directions to players versus letting them play but setting rules in order to attain the, the set goal in a practice. 
whether I'm looking to increase passing play or possession play within my team or any other aspects of team play. I coach U9s in Montreal, Canada. I, I think it's a balance, to be quite honest with you. So I'll give you an example. If your monthly topics say defending, and listen, I, I believe that's the kind of things we should be teaching our younger players and it's certainly the, the, the things that we've taught our younger players, um, you might stop it a bit more for two reasons. One, defending is a little bit more high tempo and it is a bit more, you know, lots of situations get thrown up. So you might stop it a little bit more and show them what they're going and everything like that. But what you might do in that kind of situation is have maybe a whole part whole scenario where you let them play, see what happens, which I think is really, really important. And then you might do a lot of coaching, a lot of interventions, working on a particular theme, sticking to that theme and not being too complex, especially with the younger players. And then you might let them play again and then analyse it afterwards. So I think it is a balance. But what you can't do is just let the game run. And what you can't do is stop it every two seconds. You know, you need to see what's happening and, and have a theme. So if you're working on one particular aspect, like, I don't know, getting in line with the ball, getting your back foot in line with the ball, getting side on, and you see something good, stop it, tell everyone that's great. If you see something bad on a few occasions, particularly the youngest, don't dig out the little, the young lad, say, look, there's three or four of you that have done this. You've got to make sure you do it like, you know, Dave did it two minutes ago. And, you know, it, it is a real balance. Um, I don't think it's one way or the other way. I think you've got to know what your monthly topic is. So if you're doing loads of 1v1s, let them play 1v1s. You know, you, you don't need to stop it every two minutes. Let them play and have an intervention when they're tired because those high physical um, sessions will give you natural breaks anyway. I suppose there's been a lot of talk about the current, you know, um, inclination just to step back and let them play and, you know, let, let the game do the work as it were. A lot of feedback I've been getting from... Uh, Coaches around the country saying a lot of young uh, foundation phase academy football is now looking like that. Yeah, it's, it, it's worrying. So, and as I said last time I spoke to you, I think we've got to be careful not to create a generation of coaches that don't know how to coach. Um, I don't think people should be saying things for saying things' sakes. When you know, I was a young coach. Still now, to be honest with you, there's times where I'm not sure of the answer. So I'll go away and speak to people and find out what the what 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 the answer is. And uh, I just think. You, as I said earlier, you can't be the one that talks all the time, but you can't be the, the guy that just sits on the side, says absolutely nothing, and only talks to players during the break. I think you know part of our job is to inspire the players and to help the players through the game. And football, there's enough natural breaks to help, uh, even if you pull a player off the pitch. You know, just come and have a little chat with them on the sideline. You know, I honestly believe what difference. You know, it's. Yeah. The development of the players is more important than anything else at, at these ages. And if that means, you know, you're playing 6v6 and you've got to play with five players for 30 seconds, again, what difference? What's your thoughts? This is just going on another tangent. What's your thoughts on, uh, you know, get, getting some of the boys into a game and then pulling a couple or one or one even one player out or two players out and working with them individually? Actually, during a game. So, say, like, you're in the training, so you've got a training session, and you might, you know, say you're playing a game, you've got a 6v6 going on or whatever, and just pull a couple of players out or one player out and work with him individually while the other the other boys are still playing. I think if you've got... If you've got it depends what you've done. If you've had your session, they're playing their game, I like to let them play. You might pull them off, for, as I just said, like, for, you know, 10 seconds. Hey, you know, we've been working on, you know, 1v1s. You've got that player there. You could have gone around him. Think about how you can make your space and then send him back on his way. But um, for me, when they're playing their game, let them play their game and just pull out little bits of individual information and um, let them be a bit freer. 
I think that's where you've got to just be a little bit careful of doing too much because you've probably had your session, you've done, you've given all your information, let them pay and only pull them off if you can see something that they're not quite getting right on a consistent basis so, or so they've done something right and try- you say, hey, excellent. Is that, what I'm trying to say is that say you want to work with some players individually. So like, you know, you've got a team. So obviously I agree with you that, that the end that part of the session really is, you know, sacrilege. You've got to let, let them play. When, what's some strategies for coaches to, you know, say if they've got a player who they want to work with individually a little bit and they've got, they've still, you know, maybe they're only coach there. What are the strategies that they can do to try and get into that player individually, maybe, and you know, get, get that get that important time? Because uh, a lot of feedback I get as a individual coach from 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 parents from all different academies saying they don't do a lot of individual technical work or individual work for that player's unique needs. So, what some strategies coaches can you can use to you know get that individual time with the player while you know still making everyone else's working? Yeah, I wouldn't do it during why they're playing their games or something like that. For me, that's probably because they're not doing the right technical stuff at the beginning of the sessions uh, or, you know, setting up some, you know, we, we've we introduced technical days where we're just working on certain technical aspects because there's never a scenario where you've got one player that is the only player that needs that technical work. You always have a group of players that, you know, even with the older boys that need to be better at heading or whatever. So, you just incorporate that into what you're doing in your technical work. For me, that just says that the work when you are doing your technical work isn't at the level it needs to be to meet that individual needs because you should be designing your sessions around the individuals and then incorporating it in the collective, if that makes sense. Yeah, lovely. So what's your what's this sort of links to the previous question? Uh, what's your thoughts on constant practices that help with triggers and then into small-sided games, which leads to varied and random practices? I think, you know, the varied and random is, is key because that's the game. But you you have to learn your basics as well. So you might do a constant practice where, you know, you're just continually receiving it on your back foot or checking your shoulder or whatever or constantly going 1v1 over a cone to practice a certain couple of skills. And then you let them go free and see how they get on in the random practice. You know, you might be working on a single or double scissor over a cone. You know, repeat, 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 get the scissor right, make sure their you know, foot's in the right position, hips, blah, everything like that. And then in the game, they might be doing the scissor a bit too early or a bit too late. And then you can start talking about the variables of what the defender's doing. You know, the defender might drop his weight too much on one side and you could exploit the other side, whatever that could be. And I think that's where both have an absolutely fundamental part and then how you then, as a coach, interact with that player to help them understand what they're doing well, what they're doing poorly, is the skill of the coach for me. Okay, next question. Hi, I coach under 10s and struggle to get them to appreciate positioning. Am I expecting too much? Any advice? Um, no. Um, and advice I give people, people ask me this question all the time, actually. So, you know, some of my mates might be taking a local under 7s team or something like that. And for me, very, very simple practices like the balance game. So for me, you've got a 4v4, you have a halfway line, and you say you always need a defender. Or you always need a defender and an attacker, otherwise you lose five goals. Something like that can be the most simple, basic scenario. You don't need to put 400 cones down, you don't need a plethora of rules, and the players get it because the only a certain times where you go, if you put a really harsh one, like you lose five goals, they will only do it once. And then they'll start moaning at each other, making sure they're in the right place. So I think once you get the fundamentals of always having someone near the back or someone near the front of the pitch, straight away you spread everyone out and they start understanding the positional play. What you've got to watch with that is the boy that always stands at the back. So I, we I think, in, 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 uh, 
I think that's well. I use that game a lot as well. I think it's really good just to also get in players to just play with their heads up. So you know, they're all looking around to start to build a bit of awareness about, you know, like I say, defending and attacking. So that's what I'm nice to do the uh, the eights and the nines. That'd be the great introduction to defending because that way, you know, you make sure everyone's got their heads up. Everyone's looking like, say, they've got balance and, you know, they've got a bit of awareness about what's around them. Exactly right, so and I think it's a good empty and filling game as well. And you know, we punish the the, the the teams that you know keep the same player at the back. We want the player to receive it if he's got space to burst forward, if he plays it forward to run forward, and then someone else just covers him. And I think you know when people talk about what Ajax were able to to achieve, you know, particularly you know when I think 10, 15 years ago with the intelligence of their play, when you speak to the coaches, it was just really simple games like that, but coached very, very well. They encourage the players to do those kind of things. And then it naturally comes out in the game because a player run forward and a player recover because they just know that's what they've got to do. So I think that's a really simple way, particularly with the younger players, to get them to start understanding the importance of balance and positioning. So, yeah, coming on to the next question, this links in quite nicely. So with such an emphasis on creative players being produced, are coaches ignoring limiting defensive development? Um, I think as a general comment, I think that's correct. I never forget when we was at Brentford. We had we always had a defensive month. We had um, three defensive months a year on rotation, and one of the assistant first team managers at the time, I won't embarrass them who they are, uh, pulled us and said, "It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. The fact you're teaching the boys defending," and that was actually the comment that was made. And um, for for us, very much, we knew if we could improve the players defensively, one, it's a massively important part of the game, but two, it meant. The defending was better, so the attacking had to be better. And I think one leads on to another. And, you know, uh, you, you look at Messi, he's one of the best defenders. He's an incredible defender, wins the ball back so, so much. You look how Neymar's improved since he's been at Barcelona at that aspect of his game. And, you know, it's just a fundamental of the game that I think is really, really um, neglected. And we try and teach it at a late age. And it's one of those ones, it's just like attacking. If it's not ingrained it's quite hard to teach at an older age, in my opinion. I think, I, I, I'll be honest, when I was uh, younger and uh, more an idealist, just focusing on the 1v1 when I first started out, was I, I really didn't agree with that much about defending either, but then I did re- soon realise that the 1v1 play from my attackers became much better, much more effective when we, you know the defenders were improved as well, and that led a fed into the game. So, yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's an important bit. It's a really important part of 1v1. Do you think there's a, there's a case that maybe... With our recruitment as well, we we maybe not, you know, noticing those 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 players with that defensive uh, instinct, that that hunger, who sometimes maybe get missed out for the more, maybe the big athletic kid or the more with the silky skills or that sort of thing. Yeah, I think so because a lot of the time the big kid gets put at the back because he's big, where the boy that's a clever defender, just always a bit small. He's never going to be a centre half and all that lot, and it's, they're the kind of comments that you hear. Or he's not quick enough to be a right back or whatever. And I think what's important when you see those players with those real defensive qualities is you don't just stick them at the back all the time. You put them in midfield because being a good defender in midfield is just as important as anywhere else. And I, I think it's a skill. I think it's a skill. And you see players that are just naturally good at being able to read the game and win the ball or show great desire to go and want to win the ball. And for me, they're players that you really work with, really harness, particularly if you can get them at a young age because it gives you time to be able to get them to the technical technical level you want, because great desire, great ability to defend, for me, is an important skill as it is kicking the ball in the net. So, uh, in England, um, do you think we're getting kids into academies too soon? 
Certainly not. Um, I think the idea of getting them early, being able to teach them correctly, uh, I think is absolutely vital. You look at any top sport, the younger you get these players, uh, you know, in, in any sport, you know, whether it's dancing, whether it's diving, whether it's tennis, whatever kind of thing, the younger you get them, the more chance you've got because there's a real important window uh, really between six and nine and then between the nine and 12 and you miss that. I know the likes of Jamie Vardy have come through and all that lot, but you know, what would it have been like if he had been identified at a proper early age, nurtured properly and then taken all the way through with the desire level he shows and everything like that. And, and for me, the, it's not the fact that they're in too early. It's the content in which they're taught is probably where it's wrong in certain clubs. You know, is, some clubs are doing a great this, job. This, this is exactly what I, my, my uh, argument is that people, you know, say this a lot, throw it around and I say, well, what would you rather them do, you know, down and playing, you know, on the muddy pitch on the, with the Sunday league team or if you've got them actually, at a, you know, a, a world-class facility with top coaches, with a really good, you know, top quality technical program, which is fun, they're enjoying, they're buzzing off it, you know, they're sure this is the right thing. Like you say, it's like for some reason when it comes to football, people say, you know, they shouldn't do this and that. Whereas, you know, you look at young gymnasts and ballerinas and every other sport, young tennis players, they're putting the hours in and, you know, and they're improving and they're, they're on their road to become world-class. But, for some reason, this 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 uh, you know, if you talk about people, young players doing that in football, it's you know they're not allowed to. You know, it's just something on the road to ruin or something like that. Because I think it's what people have seen, and the fact that you know, I think even from a very young, I mean, I've seen it even at under eight during this season. You know, teams are set up not to lose, and it's frightening, really, because and that's where it is wrong. There is absolutely no point a boy being brought in uh, or a young girl being brought in to a club where they're just set up to be safe because they're not going to ultimately progress. If you can, as you say, bring them in with great facilities, great coaches, great support staff, and in an environment which is highly technical and it's the best against the best and it's a fierce competition, the kids absolutely love it, the, the, the progress will be absolutely frightening. So I think it's not the fact that they're in early. I think it's a good thing, but I think it's how you manage the players, the parents, and everything around it that is the bit you've got to get right because if you get it wrong then yes it, it, it can be a real negative so leading on to our next question quite nicely then is there a danger of over coaching in the foundation phase which may result in young players losing their spontaneity and creativity uh, yes and no I think you know there's a room for working with the players I think it's a misconception that you just let them get on with it um, you know we work very hard with the players at the young ages but it's it, it's a balance that's absolutely key um, and it depends on your monthly topic. It depends what what level the players are at, and it depends on the situation. And ultimately, saw so as well. I think one of the key things is it depends on the knowledge level of the coach. So when I was 16 and I started coaching, I could not have given the technical details to a player that I can give now, even under a rate. So if you're not sure as a coach, you need to find out. You need to make sure it's the right detail. You know, find out from reputable people that have the experience, not a guy on Twitter that's been doing it 14 minutes. Um, and make sure that the information you're giving is going to help that player. Not, it's not a guess, or you're just thinking, I better say something, otherwise I'm not going to look like a good coach. Well, I suppose as well, it's, it's very like in vogue as well for people to say, oh yeah, you know, he's so good, such a good player. He came into academy system late. Oh, had all that time on the park and all this and that where, you know, they're now failing to recognise, you know, all these young, fantastic, look at all these, you know, look at the 17s and the 19s and the 20s who have had such success in, uh, in, uh, in, in the world football recently. 
yeah, some of them came in late. A lot of them came in very early as well. You know, a lot of them came very under very good top quality technical coaching from a young age. You give them that that real good technical base to go um, to go on. This what this really frustrates me as well is like looking at it and looking at you know where you know the courses are heading. It's like why don't they have a look at some of the players coming through these systems that are actually on their own doorstep and say, look, wow, what are these clubs doing? Maybe we should actually have a look at these clubs and say, look, this is actually good practice. This is play- these guys are actually producing players from a young age. Yeah, exactly right. But I think, you know, the reason that probably doesn't happen so is because, you know, people judge their youth academies by winning trophies still, you know, like whether it's the FA Youth Cup or winning tournaments abroad or whatever. Ultimately, it's players that can go and make a difference in the youth team. And, you know, there was a group when I was at Arsenal um, the previous time that went through their academy life unbeaten. No one touched them. And the, the player, there's one player playing in the championship out of that team. And I think that just says it all, really. Where a team that, you know, might have been getting beat a little bit more than the others, you know, maybe losing 50% of their games, have produced over eight pros and four of them are in the premiership. So I, I, I just still think it's the safe culture and people being a bit too paranoid about potentially losing games. And you even saw that at the under-21s where you look at the 17s and that, I think they played with a little bit more freedom. I think they've got good players, don't get me wrong. You know, there is a few over-maturated players as well, but they've got good players. But the 21s played with a fear. And, you know, I, I think that was really, really evident, particularly in the game against against um, Germany the other night. Interesting. So, uh, in an ideal world, how would you structure a foundation phase session for 12 players? It's just high, highly technical you know, get the players to enjoy working really, really hard. You know, I think one of the misconceptions is if they're not running around laughing, then it's then it's wrong. I think they've got to enjoy hard work, enjoy, you know, failing and get them to understand that failure is actually quite a good thing um, and to, to improve. And uh, for me, it's highly technical, particularly at the beginning with ball each stuff, you know, lots of 1v1 domination and stuff like that. And then depending on whatever your monthly topic is, you know, work on some possession based with that monthly topic, work on some technical based with that monthly topic and then get it into game situations and see how the players get on. I think and if I think, you go, uh, sorry to interrupt you mate, it's just, um, it goes back to that question earlier I think about intensity and that's for me, if I look in at a, you know, a good academy session, it's that all the boys are really at it, it's a good intensity, you know, it's really challenging, the, 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 you know, the tempo's high, obviously it may change in that, but you know, you know, everyone's really at it 100%, everyone's really going for it, and that's, that intensity's, and the pace of the session's really important for me, I'm not just talking about pace of football in terms of them playing 100 miles an hour, I'm talking about, you know, they're exerting themselves 100 miles an hour, they're giving it their all, you know, they're really pushing themselves to the limits, and that's the challenge I think for coaches at that high level is to really, that's like you said, earlier every session counts how can you really make sure this session as well you know especially if it's raining on this and that you're getting that 100% out of the players are really pushing themselves to really get those those uh, those outcomes no I agree so when uh, the best thing Chris Ramsey ever said to me when you know when I was 18 was the neater the session looks the worst job you're doing and I think the problem is in this day and age where image seems to be everything you know whether it's you know what you see on TV and all that lot I really think there's a fear amongst a lot of coaches that if it doesn't look clean, if the player's not, you know, peeling off and taking on his back foot and spraying a 40-yard pass perfectly and all that lot, they feel that's a reflection on them. And for me, when I look at one of my sessions, if it's clean, I've had a mare. 
because if it's completely clean for a prolonged period of time, I haven't challenged the players well enough. Uh, so how do you get the kids to practice like they would do in a real game? That's another question which sort of leads into that. So difficult. <laughs> so difficult. I mean, the world's a very different world now. You know, kids can't just go on their own at 10 o'clock, you know, over the park and stuff like that. Unfortunately, we are in the world we're in. And I think all you can do is give them challenges to do away from, you know, the club. I think the technical stuff, you know, you've got to get them to love working on the technical elements. And, you know, Alex Awobi is a great example of that, you know, where he, he didn't come into the under nine season as the best player. But if you showed him saying he would go away and practice it, you know, Marcus Edwards was the same. Josh Onomar was the same. You know, Harry Winks would be the same. All those kind of players would go away and try it. And they might not be able to do it in the game. And, you know, I think you've got to try and get into the players' heads to understand that practice is so important um, for them to be better players. You know, the, the boys that go that don't practice ultimately will come up short. But I, say, I said to the parents at the beginning of the season uh, this year was you can't force the boy into the garden to practice. If you're doing that, then ultimately they're not going to want to do it. You've got to help them, support them and everything like that. But if you're literally throwing them out in the garden, locking the door and saying, go and do a load of kick-ups, for me, they've got to want to practice. I suppose as well as that, practice within your in the sessions as well, that intensity as well we talked about. So I always like to have element of competition in every session. So always when you're finishing on a small-sided games, it's like you know a, a competition in terms of winners and losers so every session you have that, you know, every every game counts, you know, everyone, if you win, if you win the game, you move up, you lose the game, move down, that type of thing. So that, add that added element of competition, every session really gives that intensity. So everyone, you know, there's, you know, everyone wants to win every single one. There's something, something always at stake. I think that's really important as well to, you know, even at the foundation phase, have that intensity and that level of competition in the thing. Because that's what boys in, they know each other. They love to challenge themselves and go at each other and, you know, win and, you know, and get, get, get the winner and that sort of thing. Also helps. No. He also helps. Obviously, dealing. You know, not only about winning, it's about losing as well. So you know, dealing with losing and being disappointed as well. No, I, I agree. But what you've got to watch in those scenarios is that they don't then win in the incorrect manner, because what you can't do is then let their development suffer. So you know, you see a lot of games where they start. You know, you say right, losers pick up the equipment and they all start shilling it in the corner. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know that that's no good. But then you can't have them just rolling it out the back every time because that's not the game. So I think you know this is important when you have a philosophy and you have your monthly topics, you have your weekly topics, and what you're working on in your sessions and everything like that. They need to win doing what you've taught them. What they can't do is start winning a way that's not going to help their development. And I think that's, again, the job of the coach and where the balance is and, and how you do that within the, in your sessions is, is as I say, where, where we earn our money. Really. Yeah, it's just, that's just about managing the group, isn't it? Managing the group and, you know, obviously you know, you, you know your own group, don't you? So yeah, um, exactly right. what, what are you looking for when you're scouting the younger players from 5 to 11, traits, tendencies, techniques, etc.? Um... There's lots of things, Saul, really. I think you've got to be careful not to look for the, the same thing. Um, for me, you know, the best groups I've taken are groups that are, you know, a balance, whether it's physically or, or, or whatever. But certainly what, you know, the, the biggest thing that I look for is, you know, players that have a desire for the game is important. Intelligence, uh, I think, is absolutely important. And I think the boys that will stick out, those boys that have that natural ability with a ball, I think, you know, when... Going back to what I said right at the beginning about over-maturated players and how many of them that dominate games at nines actually become top players, 
I think you, you look at those players that are so, you know, show a natural affiliation with the ball. The clubs that have been patient with those type of players have produced top players. And I think, you know, that's the thing, the overriding thing that I would always look, you know, if you see that player, no matter how small he is, no matter how undermaturated, he can handle a ball well and shows good intelligence with it, stick with them because they've got a chance. What about looking at um, how do you recognise players, young players who come in who've maybe, you know, their their training load, their training, the amount of hours they've done is much higher than other players and how do you recognise the latecomers and, you know, those who haven't done as much? Because obviously we're talking about six or seven or seven, eight-year-olds coming in and uh, there could be wildly different amounts of hours trained from players. So you've got to try and recognise, you know, those players who maybe are going to be the late developers in terms of they haven't trained as much as the other guys. It is so important, so and we, we've had this conversation a lot this year. I'm very lucky where I am at the moment. We've probably got the best recruitment team in the country. And, you know, when the players come in, we have an idea about their football history. And I think it is so important because, you know, with the likes of the stuff that, you know, you guys brilliantly do, you know, players have a lot of access to 1v1 sessions with, you know, skilled people and stuff like that. And particularly, you know, the boys that come from more affluent families, you find that they've actually had a really in-depth football education ever since they maybe been two or three. And you've got to be really careful that another boy might come in who's played no structured football whatsoever. We had it with a goalkeeper this year. And you cannot judge it on that merit. You need to see how the player develops. And if you do not understand the football history or not sure, coaches need to spend the time with the recruitment staff and the parents to understand what that boy has done over the period of time that's led him to the, to, to the place that he is now. Because for me, unless you understand that, you can't make a judgment, no matter whether they're 16 or whether they're 8. We had a player at Brentford that came in at 15 who just was so smooth technically. He, he, he couldn't do something. You showed it to him once and he could do it. And we were like, wow. He had never been at an academy or anything like that. When we drilled down to it, he was from a private school and did huge amounts of futsal, um, lots of curva. So he had done a lot of technical-based stuff so he could pick things up quite quickly. And we needed to understand that before we made a judgment call on it, if that makes sense. So uh, I think coaches have just got to do their, their homework a little bit. I think uh, as well, I can testify to that. I remember, you know, being a coach, nines, tens, or elevens, a player comes in, or well, two players come in. One player obviously hits the ground running, and the other one just takes time. And like you say, so especially when you got you're dealing with trialers who've been at other academies, like you say, who played academy football, they know the tempo a little bit. They maybe haven't played at a club that, at that level, and then the player comes straight in from grassroots, who's a bit like in a rabbit in the headlights, and is a bit like well overwhelmed about it but you just need to see that couple of things you know I remember when uh, we signed Tashan Oakley Booth at Spurs you know that took, that took a long process for him but he you know he did come he was like a street player had come in and you know and, and he was you know it did take a while to make a decision but we made a decision on him and you know look at that sort of that look at the, the player he turned out to and he really accelerated very quickly once he bedded into academy football so it's really ch- real it's a real challenge isn't it for coaches and recruitment staff to see those the different players, where they come from, the ones who you see, see something in it, and and I suppose it's the world is about deciding how much time you're going to give them, and you know how many players you can have in a group is, is the end of the day, isn't it? Yeah, I agree. And listen, exactly what you said is, uh, we, I take it back to when I was 21, walking through the door at Arsenal, a trialist would come in who wasn't at the same level as the other players, and I'd be saying to the recruit, he's miles off. Why are you bringing him in? And it's like, I think it's an experience one as well that you just learn that. 
you know, you, you need to give them time. If they show something, give them time, see how they go. Because at the end of the day, even if you give them a season, I don't see what you're losing by giving them a season to see what they can do and whether they can improve and everything like that. You know, if you've got 14 players and you've got 15, you've just got to manage it different. With the, with the resources, particularly the top clubs have got now, being able to build games programs across weekends and that, you can manage it with a, with a wider base. And I think that's why that wider base is so important because if you can see Sank in a boy, give them time, see how they go, give them time to develop, support them as well as you support the players that are perceived in the top quartile and just you, you might have a better player on your hand than you thought you might have done at the beginning. I suppose as well that's the thing is the importance of having experienced members of staff within the foundation phase as well rather than you know it being the starting point for coaches on their journey after, as it often is rather than rather having you know people who've been there done it and seen you know player development cycle and understand what to look for you know I think that's could be key for clubs right I agree completely and also you've got to think about how you're going to produce your next generation of coaches because if your next gen of coaches are only coaching with people of very similar experience levels to them I don't see how you're going to get them to operate at the level you're going to I mean Aussie was insistent at this at, at Brentford you know I would work with the eights or you know people like Stuart English would work with the eights on a regular basis with some of the younger coaches and stuff like that so we were just trying to one make sure experienced people were around to help the players but also experienced people were around to help the, the coaches become better coaches as well and I think that's important but again linking back to an early point all of us need to lose our egos and understand that we can learn off everyone and someone has been in the game 20 years you know whether you've done two or three years you need to milk them for every bit of knowledge they've got because they've gone through an experience that when you're a younger coach, you haven't. Last time I spoke to you, I said exactly the same. You know, when Roy Massey talked to me at Arsenal about saying you need to see two or three cycles go through before you start understanding this at the level that he understood it. And when I was 21, I thought, you're talking rubbish, Roy. You know, you're just saying that because I'm young and what have you. He's 100% right. 100% right. And I think, you know, you can only make better decisions on players um, with experienced people around you to make those decisions. Okay, good. So how many hours a week should each age group uh, train as a team and as individually? What are the Cat 1 boys required to do? Um, I think irrespective of what the Cat 1 boy, you know, everyone does 90-minute sessions now. But for me, I think, you know, this is where I think sports science play a really important part. And maybe a lot of places are underutilised because for me, I think the players should do two hours I think there's a sports science element, you know, particularly at the younger ages, they shouldn't be using, you know, dumbbells and that, but working on their, you know, their sway movements or, you know, their, their dynamic ability or, or whatever it is. But for me, you can imagine if every player is coming in, spending half hour on prehab stuff, movement stuff and whatever, then going into a 90 minute, you know, football based session, I think that for me would be the ideal and training three times a week, obviously as they get older, starting doing day release and what have you, and playing at, at the weekends is, is absolutely fine. I think one of the misconceptions is that, you know, if the boys are playing on Sunday, they shouldn't train for too long on a Saturday. I'll go back to the example of um, Alex Awobi's age group, which, you know, there's over 11 pros out of that age group when they were under nines now. Um, and we used to train for like two hours two and a half hours on a Saturday, which might have been a little bit too much. but And then they would go out on a Sunday, look fresh as possible and absolutely murder everyone. And not murder everyone through their physical domination, through dominating the ball, 1v1, passing the ball. You know, I think as I went back, every minute counts for me. And I think working with the sports science staff, the physio staff, managing the players' loads, 
you know, you can create a really creative program that gets players to a technical level that can compete and if not excel abroad, which I think is probably where we're coming up a bit short now. Just doing 90 minutes, including the sports science elements, I think is not going to get us to the technical level we need to be at. Well, I remember doing the old uh, youth coaches license many years ago at Kiel with John Allpress and Noddy Holder. And actually, they were actually saying, you know, maybe we could, can we do more hours at that point before we went under this new... Uh, thing where you know god forbid you train you, you train lots of football is that they actually recommend you got lot you should do more football you should do more hours and it's the question is obviously just have you got the body for football so the question is obviously like you know how, how much is too much how much is not enough um you know obviously like we've talked about previously you know you're encouraging people to do other sports but as you know sports scientists say you know there's a clear correlation between the amount of hours you're doing and the the end game of where you're going to end up as a footballer so like I said, if you are gifted and talented in that sport, like if you are a ballerina or a young gymnast or a young tennis player, you've got to put, if you want to be a top level, we're talking about an elite, international, world-class player, you have to put the hours in. And that's the problem is this fallacy now, thinking that, you know, oh, you can just turn up to your academy, do your three sessions, 90 minutes, and then go home and put your feet up and play PlayStation, or and then that's going to be enough. Yeah, it's no chance. And, you know, I think what worked really well at Brentford was, we had a magnificent set of, um, you know, physio and sports science staff, you know, led by Neil Gregg and, and, and the guys that w- we worked so closely that we made sure that the players' loads were managed in the correct way. You know, it could be that they've had a really heavy week or the pitches are really heavy and we would, we would adjust the program accordingly. But we were very much of the opinion that you look at top level sport now, you, physically you have to be so robust to deal with the rigours of the Premiership, Championship, League One, Two. And I think if we're not putting the players in those situations through their academy development, I think they're either going to break physically, break technically, but certainly they're not going to be at the level we want. You know, you've got to push the players to that limit and beyond in the right way and work with a physio and sports science staff to manage that because if you're physically not ready, it ain't going to happen for you. And I think that's why quite a lot of players break at those younger ages when they hit the first team. I just think they're physically not prepared. What's, um, so another question now. So for U9 group playing 7v7, is there a particular formation you see that has success? We play 1-1-3-2. So I assume you're saying he plays a keeper, one at the back, three in the middle, two up front. Um, I don't think there's a right answer or a wrong answer. I think... Playing, I think the Belgium FA got this right where they got the boys to, in their clubs to play a lot of different formations. Um, you know, if we were playing seven aside, I would usually pick a, like, you know, one, you know, three, one, one, or so, you know, whatever kind of thing. Um, but I don't like it always sticking two at the back because I think it's a mindset thing with the players. I think if you almost go one with a couple in midfield, two wide players and a forward, I think what you end up finding is you get a rotation between the defender, the midfielders, the, the, the striker, the midfielder, the wide players get to understand you know, what to do in possession, what to do out of possession. I think that probably gives you the most outcomes, but I would I think, move uh, it I think, around. I think that, well, that this guy who says he plays one one three two. my thing would be that exactly that. Is there enough rotation? So obviously we always play a classic 2-3-1. Two, two, three, two, two, three, with two at the back, the nice same thing for me. There wasn't enough movement, so we actually started playing a three-two-one, which I was quite cynical about because I thought actually, you know, that's quite, that's going to be defensive. But actually, 
it turned out to be really attacking because with three at the back, you've always got one joining in, so you've got rotation naturally up the side, and you've got, you've got runners coming from deep out wide, but also it gave the midfielder someone the opportunity to play in the middle with someone. That was a real benefit, so you've got two in midfield, so which is, I think was real good for about developing you know, rotation in the middle and developing quality midfield play, and obviously then the, one of the uh, defenders can join into midfield and the other, the other midfielder drop out, and I think that's key for like, you know, we're talking about elite level playing elite level football at a young age that that idea about balance we talked about that rotation is that you know you don't want to be playing a game in my opinion you don't want to be playing a game when you've got someone who's just stuck in that one position or you've got a defender who's at the back and he defends there the whole game I think that's the worst thing possibly you can do and that just thing maybe if you want to win a game but it's all about movement rotation making players play with their head up that's I think there you're going to get real quality outcomes if you've got constant movement and rotation in that in those positions no, no, I agree. I, mean, I had a player this year that um, his, his father came up to me and said, oh, he gets the ball and you tell him when he's got space to drive into midfield, but if he loses it, there's no one covering and he's worried that that's his fault. I said, it's not his fault, that's everyone else's fault. And it goes back to, to my point about like doing things like the balance game. The boys will learn through, through putting them in that environment. And how you dress up your formation is, depending on the players, like you, know, you just said you played 3-2-1, where I would dress it up. One three one one or something like that, so the players think it's a little bit more attacking. But I also think it's not just as important as in midfield, but also with the attackers. Now, Brentford, we with the older age groups, we always played two two up front because you know players come into you and say I'm a ten. You know what what do, what does that mean? Because in five years' time, people might not play with a ten. So I think it's about creating a formation that gives a freedom to really it's wherever the players end up, they end up as long as the formation kind of remains where it needs to be um, so I think the, the guy who's asked the question I think he's not too far off but I would mix it up but I would mix it up higher up the pitch and not further down the pitch if that makes sense and so now moving on to planning um, Bucky how long in advance do you plan uh, what about tell us a little bit about your technical periodization? Uh, any any um, recommendations on that on that front so for this season, we sat down in August and planned out the entire season. So we planned out what the monthly topic was, what then the weekly topics would be of that, and then what the technical topics would be of that. So, you know, saying like, you know, defending, we would do a lot of going over players, you know, another defending month, we'd do a lot of going around players or whatever. And we broke it down so we knew exactly what we were going to work on, what week, what month, et cetera, et cetera. And then as we went through the year, we tweaked it every time because we basically had three month, three three syllabus months, and then kept rotating them around. And every time we finished a month, a bit like what we did at Brentford, we did an in-depth analysis of how that month went, what was good, bad, and indifferent. And then when that next one come up, we had already planned, reviewed, and implemented kind of the changes we'd make. What we did very well at Brentford was at the end of every month we had that review as a collective, and then the senior staff went away and then reviewed it and changed it, shared it with people. We all had a, you know, a conversation. And then when that month came back around, the briefing of that month would then highlight the changes that we're going to make on the results of the previous month, if the previous kind of time we did it, if that makes sense. That's very much what we incorporated now. So I think right at the beginning of the season, particularly when you're talking about professional football clubs, you need to do that planning and have a clear plan for the entire year that's linked to your philosophy so you know exactly what you're doing communicate that to the coaches make sure your training is you know your training of the coaches is in line with that and that you've got the caliber of people to be able to deliver it 
And, and what about bits like reactive stuff or so stuff that happens in a game, like you just want to address and that sort of thing? How do you um, fit that into your into that that scheme? The worst thing I ever hear is, "Oh, we're going to work on um, not getting done by a ball over the top because we lost two goals to that at the weekend." You know, I think particularly at the younger age groups, you've got to stick with your philosophy, do what you've got to do. You might have conversations with individuals as you go and all that, lot, but what you can't do is then escape from your program and what your syllabus or what you're doing just because of something that's happened in a match. What you've got to do is analyse it. So say it's a defensive issue. If you're in an attacking month, you need to keep going with what you're going and just make sure that in your defensive months you've got it adequately covered and, you know, particularly at the Cat 1 clubs, you know, you've got the video analysis and everything like that to show the players. And then, you know, I'm talking about obviously the younger age groups here. With the older players, you can you can do it slightly differently. But you just wait. Speak to them, as I say, after the game. But what you can't do then on the Monday where you were meant to be working on, you know, attacking play in the final third is now work, dropping off when there's no pressure on the ball, if you, if you know what I mean. You've got to be really careful about that. I think that's as well. That's when you've got to be brave. And I suppose that's if you've got the backing of your management as so I remember working under Chris as well Chris Ramsey at Spurs you say you know Sunday's just another training session and yeah. you know you don't want to see the pre-game forward so that's you've got to be brave and say yeah well you know, we, we, you know, we kept trying to play out at the back we got done several we conceded several goals we could play out from the back and that's just the thing you've got to say okay well and that's just part of your philosophy being brave explaining that to the parents and saying to the boys you know that's obviously this that happens but we've got to keep on going it that's not our priority at the moment I suppose that, but I suppose that can be tricky I remember that you know that changing quickly when Chris left, and that's you know, and that's obviously that's that's just up to uh, people's opinions, isn't it? I suppose you just got to go from what what you're getting from upstairs. It's the philosophy of the club, and at the end of the day, you know, you join a club, the philosophy of that club, and the people who are in charge. You either buy into what they're doing and do what you've got to do, or you don't buy in, and then ultimately you've got a decision to make whether you should be a, a, another football club. But for me, I think. The, you know, link, going back to one of the previous questions about Brentford, we had a clear philosophy. We knew what our monthly topics were. We knew what Aussie wanted from us all. And we knew, you know, we had a very experienced staff to deal with the players. And I think, you know, what happened at the weekend wouldn't then change fundamentally what we would then go do in the week. And I think you're right in what, you know, Chris says. And we were lucky to be, you know, brought up in that kind of environment. But, you know, I, I do feel that, you know, for some of the younger coaches, they're put in that situation. And I, I, and I think it's a difficult one for them. I really do think it's a difficult one for them because they might be getting pressured from other people. You know, oh, well, God, you've got to beat 5 0 the weekend. That can't happen again. You know, you hear comments like that. And, you know, uh, I remember as a young coach at Arsenal, we got absolutely murdered by West Ham one week. And one of the senior staff said, oh, you, you can't lose by that many goals. And it's like, oh, but. You know, this is our philosophy. We were trying to do it. No, no, no. If that happens, you've got to, you know, hit it a bit longer and all that. Like, I'm thinking, uh, nine, is that right? You know, that didn't sit quite right with me. And as I say, that's where it's different at nine to when you're talking about 16, because at under 16, you could almost play in the first team. So different age groups have a different balance. But at the end of the day, it's the philosophy of the club. It, it, it's a tricky one, so to be quite honest with you. And tell us a little bit about how you organise your the technical periodization for your 1v1 work. Um, uh, I mean, I do a, a lot of research and I, I still am now, 22 years later, really. And, you know, looking at what players do, movement training. I spent a lot of this year talking to some very, very good people about how players move, particularly sideways and backwards and stuff like that. And how I can, in my technical practices, 
improve players' movement um, and being able to change direction better and being able to feel the ball better and everything like that. And I think, you know, how I structure my 1v1s practices is around that. Um, I've started to move a lot more as well towards, once I know the boys have a fundamental technical base about looking at players, doing things depending on what they see in the game, you know, your first touch should be based on, you know, where the space is, where the defender is, etc. like that. I think when I was a younger coach, I perhaps te- taught a lot of the technical stuff and not enough of the the game awareness stuff, where now I think both is as important as each other. So, you know, making sure they move right and the fundamentals are there is absolutely vital. And then getting them to understand how to utilise that in a match and getting feedback from them as well. I think one of the interesting things I noticed this year was to say, so the player, you know, why why did you take a big touch there? Sometimes I might say, oh, I had a bad touch. And they thought, oh, I saw a bit of space behind him, so I thought I could get around it. It's quite interesting when you start talking to the players about why they do what they do in the game. And I think that starts adjusting your 1v1 practices. And I suppose to finish off, I think it's the variation of the scene setting with a 1v1 practice. So a lot of the 1v1 practice you see is ball gets played, guy takes him on. And I think, you know, you need to look at, you know, starting players with a bit of movement, players receiving the ball to the, you know, the back of the defender, the back of the goal, you know, maybe doing a quick inset play so the defender can get a little bit closer. I think the variety of the situation you can put them in, in the 1v1 practice, I'm setting aside here, learning the fundamentals of the skill is absolutely vital. And then see what they do, see what decisions they make. And I think you just talk to them about that. I'm a big fan at the moment of I spend if I'm going to work with a new group I actually start with actually receiving working with the ball to the back to pressure and then maybe so I call hazard work now which used to cause a damn work and then maybe move on to Ronaldo work after like I say it's about variation and obviously I like practices that have both of those elements but I think now that was that you look at hazard the way he moves with the ball and with uh, moves defenders around I think that's a lot more difficult way to uh, dominate 1v1 when you have you receive them with, a, with someone in, in your back and trying to shake them off and like almost like a, the rodeo as it were and I, I agree it's, it's saying that is about how players move and doing that and this is why I think this is why people don't understand like the the uh, the different outcomes the multiple outcomes you get from doing ball mastery properly you know with a ball is these movement outcomes and if you're, you're faking one side to the other you're turning one side you're being able to explode sharply out of the out of these out of the turns these are really massively important you know outcomes you're getting from ball mastery when you do it properly when you do it consistently and these feed into it so you know i think that's uh sometimes get lost in the argument when people saying you know is it really you know people some people said you know ball mastery is touches for touches sake for instance yeah, that's why England are where they are so to be quite honest with you you know uh, but to be honest with you there's also things you see particularly on the internet of people that are doing 1v1 practices but the players are being taught wrong because I, I just don't think that people know the detail they need to know as I say you know I've been you know I learned as a curve coach when I was 16 that's how I started and that's why I've had such an, an interest in, in, in 1v1 play and stuff but I'm I'm doing more research now 22 years later, that is adapting my thinking, not fundamentally changing it, but thinking about how I teach the players. And I think, you know, you need to have an in-depth knowledge to be able to get the right information across to these players. And it goes back to our earlier point about having the right experienced people at the right places within your club 
to be able to make sure the coaches are giving the correct detail. And it works hand in glove, I think, with, you know, you get some top physio staff, top sports science staff that I've been able to have access to over the over the last couple of years. And, you know, it really does make you think about how we're teaching these players and giving them the best possible opportunity to be an Iniesta, a Messi, a Neymar, etc. Um, but it doesn't happen by accident. There's a lot of variables. And like we were saying about um, having the back to player, having the going over player, literally at the moment how we do it is we, uh, we've designed it so one month you'll do a lot of going around player, another month you'll do a lot of going over and we'll stick to that for that month. And I think sticking it to it for a prolonged period of time is important. What you shouldn't do is going around one one session and then going over the next. You need to really drum home the fundamentals of what that skill acquisition is. And what's your then? This leads on to the next question quite nicely. What's your thoughts on the lack of content in terms of ball mastery and one v one in, in uh, the FA's most recent courses? Uh, yeah, it's um, it, it's a very difficult thing to coach. And I think there's a there's a lack of understanding of it in the country uh, because I think people see you know passing and moving as more fundamental important skills in this country. But for me, you know, until the country embraces being able to be dynamic one v one player with great content within your coaching uh, armory of being able to teach players to be good one v one. I think there's always going to be a bit of a ceiling for how good we can actually get our players to. And I think there's a real opportunity for the football club that designs their syllabus around those kind of methodologies like Barcelona have and, you know, like, you know, like Dynamo Moscow and all those kind of clubs have done. I think they could, you know, a club could really just dominate this country and produce some wonderful football players because I think that the recruitment's there, I think the facilities are there. And we've got the players. We just need to produce the content and education, educate our coaches in a way that helps them, helps us produce those type of players. There's just not enough of those type of players in this country. It's as simple as that. So you think it's a case of maybe looking and learning from uh, established and successful academies in in Europe. I think it's it's something like the academies that you've been to. So you know, there's you know, you look at sport in Lisbon. They're slightly different now. But, you know, back when they were producing Ronaldo's and Charisma's, you know, they were absolutely, everything about their sessions was creating 1v1 creative players. And look at some of the wingers and 1v1 type players they created. And maybe they went too far down that way because they might that might have been to the detriment of other players. But I think for whatever reason, when people come back with practices, they seem to all be Rondo-y based or, you know, or, you know, very Parsi based and stuff like that. And, in the conversations I have, I've had with the Barcelona staff, isn't isn't that so? It, it, it's strange, really, when you see what people you know come back and say, "Oh, Barcelona do this," or you know, Atletico Madrid or Bilbao do this, or whatever kind of thing. Because for me, when I've gone abroad, when I've spoke to people, when I've played teams, the most outstanding outstanding attribute those top teams have had is their players dominate us one v one. But saying that, I've taken teams abroad that have dominated other teams 1v1 because of the philosophy we've had in place. So, you know, it just shows you if you've got the right philosophy, you can compete and if not, you know, win on those kind of merits. Well, if if one thing I've learned in the last few months doing a lot of travelling and being lucky enough to do this podcast and speak to some of the best talent developers around the world is that if you're looking for a common theme that runs through these things, it definitely is, you know, ball mastery and 1v1 and, you know, making and technical excellence 
you know, being the real key to, to you know, to, to elite talent development. And that's, I suppose, what we're talking about, isn't it? It's about, you know, do we want to run our system as some sort of soccer school or, you know, you know, turn up laissez-faire, let's let the boys get on with it? Or do we, are we serious about trying to produce top-level athletes? That's what we want, really, isn't it? Top-level athletes who have the world-class technique. Exactly right. And you know that, it, and look, it, just one caveat to that as well. And the other misconception saying that, and but somehow this isn't fun. So you know, because they're we're challenging players and they're working hard, they don't fun. That's a load of rubbish. You know, look at the players. You know, the players I've had for the last, lucky enough to have for the last ten years, driving every session. They come out, they're buzzing because they are challenged. You know, this fallacy that they've got to be walking around playing games and making up their own little silly games. It's rubbish. You know, if you want an elite environment, it's about challenging them. They're having fun as well. You know, and this is how you get in the outcomes. And I think it's a real skill with a coach. This is something that I, I haven't got right all the time, to be honest with you, so is how you balance them to create an environment where it's intense, it's hard, but, all, but get the players to understand that it's, it's there to help them and make it fun. And I think it's taken me a long time and a lot of mistakes to probably get myself to a level where I can now do that, whether I'm coaching an under seven or whether I'm coaching an under 21 player. And I will still make mistakes now because it's a really difficult thing to do. And I think, you know, I think the more that we create an environment where it is just like, you know, having a laugh and everyone's running around laughing and all that lot, I just think we're going to be struggling. There's a time and place for those bits, but the players need to know when they cross the line, it's serious, it's hard, and they've got to love it. You know, you asked Rory McIlroy what it was like when he was – spending six hours a day, you know, smacking a golf ball to the same same area. He loved it. You know, he, that's what he enjoyed. And I think, you know, we, we've got to create footballers that enjoy those 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 kind of things because if we don't, ultimately, they're going to be technically short. Bucky, thanks very much for your time. It's been amazing. Appreciate it again, mate. And uh, uh, we'll hopefully speak to you soon. No, pleasure. And I hope it's been useful. Thanks, all. Speak soon. Thanks for tuning in to the MyPersonalFootballCoach.com Soccer Player Development Podcast. MyPersonalFootballCoach.com's Dynamic Ball Mastery Program is the world's leading online individual technical training program, proven and developed at the highest level in the English Premier League. Sign up now to train like the pros and take your game to the next level. Master the ball, master the game.